an egalitarian society is one, to use the old expression, where Jack's as good as his master. Just because you might hold down a big job doesn't make you an inherently better person. That's the essence of an egalitarian society. I think we always have been a very egalitarian society. I think it's one of our most attractive characteristics. I hope it will always be the case. Hello and welcome to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott is your voice. Each week, Tony and I discuss mainstream Australian values, the future of the Australian way of life, family, community and Australian culture. More importantly, we want to hear from you. That is why we have the Tell Tony Abbott segment at the end of each show where you can ask Tony your questions on whatever topic you want. Phone in to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03-9946-4307 to leave your question. You can also go to the website australia.ipa.org.au where you can join the Australian Heartland community and sign up to receive this podcast sent to you each week along with special analysis from the Institute of Public Affairs. Thank you for supporting the Australian way of life. And now to this week's episode. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be with you for another episode of Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. As a reminder to all of our listeners, hit subscribe or like wherever you're listening to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Tony, we've got a jam-packed episode today. We'll be talking about vaccine mandates, coalition senators withholding their support uh, from the government, plus a couple of very interesting listener questions, and you're going to tell us what you're up to at the moment, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, to begin with, let's discuss some of the recent developments on the issue of vaccine mandates. A, a few days ago, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, uh, came out against vaccine mandates, saying, and I quote, now it's time for governments to step back and for Australians to take their life and for Australians to be able to move forward with the freedoms that should be theirs. Uh, and Scott Morrison went on to say that other than in specific circumstances, we aren't in favour of mandatory vaccines imposed by the government, end quote. Uh, Tony, this is a step in the right direction, although I might opine maybe a little bit too little too late. What are your thoughts? Daniel, I agree with the Prime Minister that uh, we shouldn't be mandating uh, vaccinations. Uh, we don't need a no, job, no jab, no job situation, other than perhaps in some quite specific circumstances like doctors, nurses and aged care workers. So I agree with the Prime Minister. My understanding of what happened in the Parliament the other day is that it would have been a Senate resolution which one nation moved. Um, normally, uh, the government will vote against these resolutions as a, as a matter of principle because they're put up by independents, uh, Greens uh, and the ALP uh, really just to sort of make a point to strike a pose, if you like. So the government normally votes against them as a matter of principle, but it seems on this occasion there were some Senate backbenchers who felt sufficiently strongly about the issue uh, to, uh, to vote against the whip, so to speak. But Really, uh, they weren't voting against Scott Morrison. They were voting against uh, the state governments. They were, I suppose, simply expressing with their parliamentary vote the position that the Prime Minister himself had earlier adopted. So, again, to get back to the main point, uh, I'm not anti-vax. 
I got vaxxed as soon as I reasonably could. Uh, I think that these vaccines are effective at reducing the severity uh, of COVID. Now, though, that we have something like uh, 85% of the population vaxxed, the unvaxxed are a danger only to themselves. And that's why I think it's quite a big step too far to say to people, if you're not vaccinated, you can't work. Let's face it, Daniel, if you look at the uh, welfare stats, we've got a significant proportion of the working age population who for all sorts of reasons uh, won't work. <clears throat> the last thing we need is to add another 5% or so of the working age population who can't work because for all sorts of reasons, they don't want to get jabbed. Well, Tony, let's just dig in a little bit to the principle here behind the One Nation resolution. So uh, among other things, what that resolution called for is for, uh, for states and businesses to be prohibited uh, from discriminating against someone uh, based on their vaccination status. And so in effect, that would mean that the federal government would be overriding state laws and imposing restrictions on what businesses can and can't do. And I think there's an interesting issue here because some would say, look, that's not the role of the federal government. The federal government should not be overriding state legislation and it shouldn't be uh, inserting itself into the uh, voluntary business of, of, of what the commercial sector wants to do. Others would say that there's been massive overreach by the states and, and many big businesses and the federal government perhaps should look at using its powers um, to override these mandates. I have to say I'm, I'm in the second camp. I think the federal government should be looking to, to see what it can do to override some of these mandates where they've gone too far, such as here in Victoria. Uh, Tony, where are you on this debate? What are your thoughts on the principles of the issue? That's a, a very good uh, potted version of the different principles at stake here. On the one hand, I think the states have gone too far here. Uh, I'm particularly disappointed that in New South Wales, which has been the least authoritarian of the states when it comes to COVID, that state government agencies, the education department, the uh, fire and rescue, uh, the police, etc., have all effectively got a no jab, no job rule running. It's not just the health department. So even in New South Wales, I think on this issue, uh, the government has gone too far. And I think that's been a characteristic of the states throughout this pandemic. I think they've been altogether too authoritarian. But on the other hand, I do think that the feds have to uh, tread lightly here. Uh, let's face it, We've infantilised the states enough over the last few decades. The last thing we want to do is to infantilise them even further. So I think it's it's a genuine conundrum. It really is a genuine conundrum. Well, I want to just pick up another part of this debate, which I think is very interesting. And I want to put to you a quote by Senator Alex Antic. So he's a, a senator from South Australia. He's one of the Senators that voted with the One Nation resolution alongside Jared Rennick, Matt Canavan, Conceda uh, Fiorvanti Wells, and Sam McMahon, and Erica Betts abstained from that vote. And Alex Antic raises a really interesting point that um, I'd love to get your thoughts on. And I'm going to quote here what he said to the advertiser uh, Most Australians take it for granted that denying employment, services, or basic rights based on gender, race, sexuality, uh, religious, or political views is wrong. Uh, Senator Antic goes on to say, 
Yet today, those who reject a COVID vaccine are being marginalised and demonised for no reason other than they refuse to comply with the whims of power-hungry health bureaucracies all around the country, end quote. I think it's a really interesting point to say we already have this morass of anti-discrimination law, whether you agree with it or not, it exists. Um, why then would it be okay under that rubric for people to be discriminated against based on their, their vaccination status? What do you think of, of Senator Antic's observations there, Tony? Well, I can understand his uh, view that there's a double standard operating here. I absolutely do understand that. And uh, personally, as we've said uh, over the last 10 minutes or so, Dan, uh, I agree that these state uh, vaccine, vaccine mandates are completely over the top. And now that we've got something like 85% of the adult population double vaccinated, uh, the unvaxxed are a danger only to themselves. Uh, so it's wrong uh, to suddenly start saying to these people that if you have no jab, you have no job. So I'm just not sure uh, that the federal government really was in a position to achieve uh, that which he wanted to achieve. And in the end, when you've got state governments doing the wrong thing, the best way forward is to change the government. I mean, the ultimate sanction on bad governments is electoral defeat. And I think too often these days, instead of getting into state politics and making the state uh, parliamentary parties better, uh, um, instead of voting against bad state governments, we demand that the federal government should fix it all for us. And that instinct, understandable though it is, has been part of what has got us into this problem. Uh, we do have a dysfunctional federation. It's been increasingly dysfunctional for decades. Uh, my government wanted to address this with a federation and tax reform white paper process, the objective of which would have been uh, much greater clarity about who did what. We would have got the federal government out of some activities where currently it's a dog, dog's breakfast of divided responsibilities. We would have got the state governments out of some activities so it was much clearer who did what and which level of government was to be blamed when things went wrong as they inevitably do. All right, Tony, thank you for that assessment. I thought we could move to our, our second topic of discussion, which is a broader topic. And this is something that we've received a lot of positive feedback from our, our listeners on, which is around you and I discussing some of these bigger issues facing our nation's um, future. And what I wanted to talk about today is is Australia's egalitarian way of life. Um, we often talk about what does it mean to be Australian? And I think our classless egalitarian nature is, is something that's very fundamental to who we are uh, as Australians. To begin with, Tony, I'd like to get your insight into what egalitarian what egalitarianism means to you. What are some of the, the components of that? How is it lived out in, in our day-to-day -day lives in Australia? In my judgment, Dan, uh, an egalitarian society is one, to use the old expression, where Jack's as good as his master. Uh, just because you might be the boss, just because your parents might be wealthy, just because you might hold down a big job, doesn't make you an inherently better person uh, than someone who doesn't have uh, those characteristics or circumstances. So. That's the essence of an egalitarian society. 
I think we always have been a very egalitarian society. I think it's one of our most attractive characteristics. I hope it will always be the case. And I suppose in an egalitarian society such as ours, if you are talking familiarly with someone, uh, even if that person is the Prime Minister or the Premier or the head of BHP, your inclination will be to call that person uh, by his or her first name. If you jump into a taxi, the inclination will be uh, to get into the front seat, not the back seat, because um, the driver uh, is uh, is as good a person as you are. Uh, if you've got someone coming into the house uh, to do something, whether it's uh, to, uh, to help fix something, uh, whether it's to help... Uh, with the garden or with the cleaning or whatever it might be, um, you treat them uh, as as your equal and not as your servant. I guess it's 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 the Australian uh, reticence about actually having servants, which is in itself at the heart of our egalitarianism. No, I think that's quite right. And what I think and what I'm a little bit concerned about is, is some of the what I would see is some challenges to that society you've just described. And I guess there's always, always challenges. Uh, but I wanted to offer you my thoughts and a couple of challenges I see and just, just get your thoughts as well. I think one of them is we're potentially becoming a little bit more class-based, a little bit more stratified as a society where this sort of upward economic mobility is getting a little bit more difficult than say it was in the say post-World War II era. And another part of it, I think is a social division through identity politics which is essentially the weaponization of multiculturalism where people are delineated by their, you know, their race or their gender or their ethnicity uh, rather than being united around what it is that we share in common as Australians. And I think those are two very dangerous trends that we've seen develop over the last, say, 10 to 20 years in this country. I think that can all be overcome, but I think that those are two of the threats we face at the moment. Um, your thoughts on that, Tony? You won't be surprised, Dan, that I share your anxieties on both issues. Uh, a, a less equal society, uh, a more economically stratified society uh, will tend over time to become less egalitarian as well. Uh, really vast disparities of wealth uh, do tend to create uh, a lot of master-servant relationships and over time uh, that can be, if you like, uh, uh, solidified into something resembling uh, the kind of class structure that we've never had. And yes, uh, as you say, uh, identity politics is, is, is toxic. Uh, we've got to always remember the fragrant phrase of Martin Luther King, uh, let me be judged not on the colour of my skin, but on the content of my character. Uh, and there are so many factors today uh, working against that, of which the most pernicious, as we've discussed before on this program, is a critical race theory, which in its own way seems to be creeping in uh, to Australian educational institutions. And uh, the last thing we want is to see everything through a prism of race, and yet that seems to be inherent in the uh, national curriculum, cross-curricular priority, um, uh, which, uh, which we've talked about before of looking at everything through an, a, lens of, a lens of indigeneity. Yeah, we have, we have discussed that before. Uh, Tony, do you reckon the COVID lockdowns have made this, this divide worse? I, I'm sort of thinking in terms of the divide 
of the impact of, of the lockdowns between, say, big and small business, between public and private sector workers. I think it's it's exacerbated some of those divisions in our society. And, of course, we've just discussed the vaccination. So do you think it's it's made, made some of these issues worse? Look, I certainly think that it's made us more querulous and it's made us look at our neighbour less as a source of genial help and comfort and comradeship uh, and more as a a potential source of infection. Uh, In my building in Sydney, for instance, Dan, uh, there's a situation at the moment where masks are recommended but not required. Now, because I've always been deeply sceptical about these wretched masks, I know in some limited circumstances they may have some value, uh, but uh, the extent of these mask mandates has been quite over the top. But in our building where masks are recommended but not required, some people are wearing them and some people aren't. And you can tell that there is uh, a certain glaring uh, by those who (laughs) aren't wearing them, those who are wearing them, those who aren't. By the same token, there is, if you like, a certain solidarity between those who aren't wearing them. So (laughs) I guess it cuts both ways, doesn't it? It does. And just on that, what I've noticed, I don't know if it's like this in Sydney, but in Melbourne at the moment, if you're sitting down at a restaurant, for example, you don't have to have a mask on, but those who are serving you do. And that makes me very uncomfortable because you have a sort of a servant class developing where there's different rules where they are having to wear masks while they're waiting on you, which I I find very uncomfortable. I sort of understand in a way the the logic behind it, but um, that that's something that that sort of strikes me as as being quite divisive and also something that you wouldn't see in a country like like Australia. Is that the situation in in Sydney as well? Have you noticed those kind of dichotomies uh, occurring? Look, that is the situation in Sydney, as I last understood it. That if you are at a restaurant, you are not required to wear a mask once you are sitting at the table, but the staff are required to wear masks. I just think that again. It's, uh, it's about treating your fellow human beings as people with whom we really are all in this together. Uh, and this idea that some of us should be masked up and some of us don't need to for whatever reason uh, strikes me as it strikes you as pretty odd, <laughs> particularly given the uh, very thin evidence uh, that other than in very unusual circumstances, masking does any good. Yeah, I completely agree. And I hope uh, these mandates go away as quickly as possible. I mean, it's um, interesting, Dan, I was I was in an airport the other day. Uh, thank God we're allowed to uh, go to airports again because there is the possibility of travel. And every couple of minutes, there was an announcement over the PA uh, telling us how we had to wear a mask for our own good. And literally, you could have fired a cannon uh, down the uh, at the domestic terminal of Sydney Airport and not hit anyone. There were so few people there, and yet we were being told how essential it was that we're absolutely masked. And, of course, once you get on the plane, you're allowed to take your mask off to eat and drink, Uh, and it's interesting how many people seem to constantly have in their hand a little plastic water bottle one way or the other to have (laughs) tiny sips. But we're constantly told that it's absolutely essential that we wear these damned masks. And yet at the same time, we don't have to wear them uh, for 50% of the trip if we've got something uh, 
that we're drinking or eating. So, look, again, so much of this, which should be left to common sense and to individual choice, has become the subject of rules. And taken on the whole, these rules are becoming deeply, almost unconscionably oppressive. No, you're quite right. I have to admit, Tony, there's been a a couple of times where I've been on the train, for example, and I've had a a relatively empty cup of coffee with me for most of the trip uh, as as a way of of dealing with that. And the police... But the police in Victoria have been checking, haven't they? Whether I've, people well, are carrying empty cups. I, I think that's been the case. Fortunately, I've not been checked up mm. on yet, but um, I always leave <laughs> a little bit of coffee just at the very bottom, just in case. Um, <laughs> so anyway, Tony, you mentioned that you've been traveling. Why don't we why don't we discuss that for a minute? So um, where where have you been traveling to and, and what is it that you're up to? Can you share with us uh, and our listeners what you where you are at the minute? Well, again, Dan, I should apologize to the listeners because on three or four occasions over the last 18 months, I have been able to leave the country because I've been on government business, either British government, Board of Trade business, or on Australian government, uh, India Trade Envoy business. And this is why I'm out of the country again. Uh, There's a meeting of the UK Board of Trade in Belfast later in this week. Uh, I'm also doing a bit of charity work I'm on a number of charities connected with the Japanese philanthropist, Dr. Handa. That's why I'm out of the country. And look, at the United Kingdom, which in some respects has been hit harder by the pandemic than Australia, uh, certainly seems to have uh, life going on reasonably much as normal, although, although um, yes, uh, uh, the, the people working in restaurants are masked here in London. Uh, in the same way that they are in Sydney and Melbourne at the moment. And I think there are still quite a lot of office workers in particular in Britain who are working from home. No, thanks for letting us know that, Tony. And um, thank you also for getting up early. I think it's around 6am that we kicked off this morning with you in, in, in London. So we greatly appreciate you getting up early and, and keeping up the keeping up the weekly discussions. Uh, I did want to turn to our, our questions now. And, and the first question I wanted to ask you actually flows on exactly from what you were just discussing. It's a, a question from Stefan from our, our Facebook page. And Stefan asks, um, Tony, given your international experience, um, can you compare Australia and the UK in terms of the response um, to COVID? You've talked a little bit about the differences at the moment. Is there anything else you can elaborate on there, uh, Tony? Look, as I said at the beginning, you can criticise every government from one standpoint or another. I suspect that if we really uh, did uh, try to do a fair-minded cost-benefit evaluation of all the significant countries' responses, uh, we could well end up concluding that countries like Sweden and Japan, uh, which never had across-the-board lockdowns, uh, which never closed schools and universities, um, which uh, tried to Uh, have as light a touch as possible on this uh, will turn out to have had the best combination of health, economic and social outcomes. But look, in Britain, uh, they they weren't able uh, to shut the virus out with closed international borders uh, in the way we were. Uh, 
there are there are there are massive people movements in and out of the United Kingdom. Um, so, at no stage have Britain's borders been closed to the extent that ours were. Uh, so the coronavirus hit them hard and early. Uh, they did suffer uh, a large number of COVID-related deaths uh, it last year in the early part of this year. So I don't want to say that Britain is, if you like, uh, a shining success and Australia is in some way a relative failure. But I do think that the British government did two things right. Uh, first of all, they vaccinated very fast, very early, and second, once vaccination rates approached 70%, uh, they had what amounts to Freedom Day. Now, it's not complete freedom, as we've just been discussing. Uh, the people working in restaurants are still wearing masks. The people working in shops, by and large, are still wearing masks. But certainly, they made a point of saying, uh, back, I think it was on July the 19th, that the worst of this is over uh, essentially, normal life has resumed. And I think from a psychological point of view, that was a very important thing to do and all credit to Boris Johnson for it. Yeah, just just quickly on that, Tony, do you reckon they're going to lock down again? Because that's what's happening in, in some countries in, in continental Europe at the moment, Austria, uh, for example, going in that direction. Uh, I know there was some talk of another potential lockdown in the UK, but I, as far as I can tell, that's not going to happen. Is that the sense that you get? That's the sense I get. Uh, their health experts are just as divided as ours are and the headlines tend to be grabbed by the health experts with the most alarmist prediction. Uh, so, look, the public debate uh, in Britain can be just as skewed and just as catastrophist as ours has been over the last 18 months, but I do think there has been a greater reluctance in the British political class uh, for lockdowns. Uh, um, the British Parliament, for instance, has been much more, has, has had many more vocal members against lockdowns than our parliaments appear to have had. All right. Thank you for that, Tony. And I just wanted to take one more question. This one's from Ava, also from our uh, Facebook page. Uh, a bit of a critical question, but um, I'll go with it and see what you think. Uh, Ava asks, have we become too soft as a society? We used to be rugged individuals and now we want government to look after us, end quote. Tony, what do you think of Ava's question? Uh, it's a very good question. I suspect that once you get to a certain age, you start to feel nostalgia for the good old days. And I certainly wondered at some points uh, in my time as a not always that hands-on parent, uh, whether I was being more protective of my kids than my parents had been of me. Uh, for instance, uh, when I was a youngster, uh, every weekend you'd just go out roaming in the bush. Uh, cracker night was an opportunity to throw uh, penny bungers at your mates up and down the street <laughs> as opposed to something <laughs> that could only be fireworks were not something that you could only look at from afar put in place by professionals in those days. I can remember Dad dropping me and a couple of mates off uh, in the hills behind Taree uh, to spend five or six days paddling canoes uh, down the Manning River without any contact uh, through mobile phones or anything else with our, uh, with our parents. But 
we had a kind of a shield be right view about life in those days. And uh, I, I don't think Margie and I were helicopter parents. I think our kids were encouraged to get around and, uh, and, and, and do things and learn for themselves by trial and error uh, how to cope in the wider world. But I'm sure I was more protective of my kids uh, than my parents were of me. And yes, you do worry, where is the next generation of SAS going to come from? Um, uh, how, how are, how are uh, people going to cope in the wilds uh, if for whatever reason the GPS system isn't working? Uh, if they can't look at the sky and say, well, actually, that's north. Uh, if they can't look at the clouds and say, well, actually, the weather is about to change. Uh, if they can't look at a river and say, well, if I follow that, uh, I'm likely to come somewhere. Uh, so, yeah, look, I, I, I worry. I worry about our capabilities unaided by technology. I worry about our physical and mental toughness. Uh, I worry about our spiritual depth because in the end, you need things to believe in, uh, preferably things that have stood the test of time and that wonderful human beings uh, from generation unto generation uh, have believed in uh, as well, uh, so that there is this continuity between us uh, and our forebears. So, look, I, I worry about all of these things. And the challenge is not just to lament um, the passing of the old virtues and the old strengths, uh, the challenge is to do everything we can here and now to keep the best of what we've had and build on it. Well, I think those are some pretty wise words to end our discussion on today, Tony. So I think we'll leave it there. Thank you for that. And on behalf of our, our listeners, can I say thank you again for joining us uh, so early uh, over in London and have an enjoyable rest of your trip. Good on you, Dan. Lovely to talk to you and we'll do it again next week. Thank you for listening to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott and thank you for your support of the Australian way of life. This has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more or to become a member, head to ipa.org.au.